Greetings and salutations in the name of our Lord. I hope you're having a fabulous day. Let's start by reading the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right. I love the Apostles' Creed. Well, today we are going to continue on in Hebrews chapter 7. All right, the challenge with Hebrews is that it's, it's audience. It's written to Jewish believers, some of whom were still uh, Torah-observant believers and who were still involved in Jerusalem with the temple. And so it kind of makes me believe that maybe perhaps this letter was written to Jewish believers who were living in Jerusalem who were still worshiping at the temple um, with the high priests and the sacrifices, etc. And you can't blame them. Um, that's their culture. It's what they grew up knowing and loving. And you can imagine their excitement when they became a believer in Yeshua that they could now see the temple and the sacrifices and the, all the, the uh, intricacies of their traditions in a new light with it, looking at it through the lens of their Messiah and how exciting a time it must have been. But at the same time, still being tied to temple, to the temple and all that it signified, um, created tensions within the Christian church. And in the very beginning, this new faith in Yeshua was considered perhaps a form of reformed Judaism. And so many of these believers didn't see themselves as something new. They saw themselves as fixing something old and making it better because now everything that the old system pointed to was here in Jesus. And you could, you could understand how they would still be tied to their old faith and their old religion. So that's the challenge in Hebrews because I'm not Jewish. And though I can intellectually understand what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, because I've gone out and researched some of this stuff, there's still internally sometimes things that are hard for me to identify with as a believer. And today particularly is challenging for me as a Gentile, but I believe God has given me something, a point of uh, similarity that I can draw some lessons from. So. Let's take a look at this, chapter seven. This chapter, he's spending a lot of time dealing with somebody named Melchizedek. And as preparation, he's, uh, I'm quoting a verse, I'm gonna put a verse at the beginning, Psalms 110 verse four, which the writer of Hebrews refers to a lot. And here's what Psalms 110 verse four says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All right, this Melchizedek, the writer says, was king of Salem, which by the way is an early name 
for the city Jerusalem, Jerusalem, was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. Interesting that he is referred to as king and priest. You'll see why in a minute. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. Now, in the story, some kings had come and attacked Sodom and Gomorrah and taken Abraham's nephew Lot and his family. And Abraham got his the army, his army together and pursued the enemy and rescued Lot and all the captives and defeated the kings and brought the wealth back and took it back to the cities. Um, he met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Abraham gave him a tenth of everything he had just uh, taken from the enemies. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also it means king of Salem. Means king of peace. Let me read that again because I think I read it wrong. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also it means king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, this could mean a couple things. One, this king of Salem, Melchizedek, was either a theophany, uh, uh, an appearance of God in the Old Testament in the form of a man, or he could, this could be uh, Jesus himself, or maybe he's just taking liberties and drawing a picture here that you're going to see why in a minute, but there's no genealogy to this king. In, in, in Jewish writing, the genealogy was a very, very big deal. You, you, to trace your lineage back, which tribe did you belong to? Who are your ancestors? Everybody traced their lineage back to Abraham. Well, Melchizedek, obviously, was not of the lineage of Abraham. He was outside the lineage of Abraham. And by not listing a genealogy to him, either the writer didn't know, and the Old Testament didn't know the genealogy of Melchizedek, or he left it out on purpose. Don't know. But without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So Melchizedek was a very special person in the Old Testament, and he only shows up two times, in the Psalm and in the story in Genesis. Now, just think how great he was, this writer says. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. You see, the one who collects a tithe is greater than the one who pays it, and the lesser is blessed by the greater. In both ways, Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Now, here's the deal. This, the writer of Hebrews has been saying how Jesus is greater than the angels. That's what he started off with. Then he's greater than Moses. And now he's saying Melchizedek, this high priest, this priest of Salem, was greater than Abraham. Now, the law requires that the descendants of Levi, who, by the way, were descendants of Abraham, who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also were descended from Abraham. This man, however... Melchizedek did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Abraham's a big deal in the Jewish faith. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Now, in the one case, the case of the Levites, the tenth is collected by people who die. But in the other case, 
by him who's declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. So you have Abraham, and then you have Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the greater. Now, this is why he's gone through such great detail to make this point. Because Jesus is like Melchizedek. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest outside the Levitical priesthood? Why was there a need for another priest to come in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron, which was who the Levitical priesthood came through? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. If we're, going to change, if we're going to go to a totally different lineage of priesthood, that's a pretty big titanic change. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. Hmm. For it's clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Priests came through, were Levites, came through Aaron. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it's declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The point he's making is this. The Levitical priesthood goes father to son, father to son, that kind of thing. It goes through the tribe of Levi. And your physical ancestry determines whether or not you can be a priest. If you're of, if you're of Levitical ancestry, then you're eligible to become a priest. But Melchizedek stands outside that lineage. And Jesus is like Melchizedek. So you can see where he's taking this argument that there is a shift going from the old to the new. And this is indeed what he says. The former regulation is set aside. Think about the law, right? The law. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, because the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it's not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. They were just born, right? But he became a priest with an oath when God said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So whoever the Lord is talking about in this psalm is appointed priest, not because of Levitical ancestry, but because God said so. The Lord has sworn, you're a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now we're getting to it. Jesus is the high priest, the new high priest. This is where he's going with it. So here is, I'm quoting Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, where God speaks to this new covenant. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts 
in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. Because From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This is the promise God made and that there's going to be a better covenant than the one administered by the priests, the Levitical priests. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. See, Jesus' eternal life and priesthood makes possible his eternal intercession for worshipers because that's what the priest would do, especially the high priest. He would intercede for Israel once a year for their sins to be forgiven. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weaknesses. But the oath, which came after the law, appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. So after the law was put into effect, God swore an oath that there would be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that's Jesus. All right. That concludes this chapter, but I've got a couple thoughts here I want to share with you. And this is goes to the application for me, personal application for me. The thought is that the early church father Clement quoted from the book of Hebrews in AD 95. However, internal evidence, such as the fact that Timothy was alive at the time the epistle was written, and the absence of any evidence showing the end of the Old Testament sacrificial system that occurred with Jerusalem's destruction in AD 70, in other words, when the temple was destroyed, indicates this book was probably written around A.D. 65. It's very important that the readers of Hebrews understand that the Old Covenant has been superseded by the New Covenant, and the old system of priests and repeated sacrifices have been replaced by one priest and the one sacrificed. Five years or so after this epistle was written, Rome destroys the temple, effectively putting an end to Israel's temple-centric life with its sacrifices. Now, you've got to realize from the time of Jesus to the AD 70 when the temple was destroyed, there's an overlap. Jewish believers who became followers of Yeshua still had the opportunity to go worship at the temple and view everything in the temple through the lens of Messiah. Everything in, the Jew, in Judaism points forward to a Messiah that was to come. There's always an air of expectancy. Maybe this is the year Messiah shows up. Everything is symbolic and a picture and a shadow, a forecasting of things to come. And these new believers in Jesus, when they go to the temple, you can imagine how, how glorious it must have seemed to them that everything that these temple sacrifices are pointing towards has now been realized in the person of Yeshua, and it had to be an exciting time. Now, their worship at the temple would be vibrant and huge and full of life. 
but it wasn't going to be that way for very long. Hebraic believers in Yeshua have to wrap their minds around the truth that the age of the temple and the form of their worship that the form of their worship had held for centuries, i.e., repeated sacrifices, etc., was coming to an end. They didn't know it, but soon they were going to have to live without the temple and all it meant to them. What would they do if they did not understand that a new covenant and a new eternal high priest was now to be the focus of the religious life? Let me interject a thought or two here. It seems to me the issue is, is this new religion the way, as it was called? Is it something totally new or is it a reformation of the Judaism that had been their life before Jesus came along? So is the way a reformation of Judaism or is it something totally new? It's my impression that the author of Hebrews is wanting to tell them that this is something new and that the old covenant has been replaced by a new covenant. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. Um, but let's get back to our discussion. The late Dr. Walter Martin, founder of Christian Research Institute and writer of the best-selling book, Kingdom of the Cults, quipped in his usual tongue-in-cheek manner that the book of Hebrews was written by a Hebrew to other Hebrews, telling the Hebrews to stop acting like Hebrews. I'm not sure I agree with that. But I get what he's getting at. He's probably just making a joke. But they're not being asked to quit acting like Hebrews. But they are being asked to change. In truth, many of the early Jewish believers, the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews, were slipping back into the rites and rituals of Judaism in order to escape the mounting persecution. The persecution was against Christians, followers of the way. And Jewish Torah-observant Jews who were part of the new movement of the way, which became known as Christianity. Um, as Rome began to realize that this new faith was not a sect within Judaism, that in effect took Christians out from under the umbrella of protection that Judaism had from Rome. And Rome started focusing on Christians. And so the temptation for Jewish believers would be to identify more closely with the old way of doing things in order to escape the persecution that Rome was starting to exact and starting to lay at the feet of the church. So that's what the writer of Hebrews is addressing. And this comes to my application. Um, for centuries, the Jewish believers in Yahweh had the temple, its sacrifices, its uh, services, uh, everything. And the question would soon be, what would they do if the temple were no longer there? If the center of their religious life was destroyed? Therein lies my application. Here in America, for centuries, we've had the church with its buildings uh, and it, the freedom of religion that we currently have, the freedom to practice our faith the way we want to practice our faith. What will happen if one day that is taken away from us? 
What if I wake up tomorrow and discover that my church building has been shuttered and chained and that I can will no longer be meeting with my brothers and sisters in that building every Sunday or every Wednesday. What will happen if the government lands on the church with both feet attempting to eradicate the Christian faith? I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm not going to say it won't. This is the issue that the Jews are getting ready to face. And the writer of Hebrews prophetically is writing this letter. This is a prophetic letter. He's preparing them for the fact that when their, the center of their faith is destroyed, when the temple is destroyed, that's not the center of their faith anymore. There's a new covenant and a new high priest. And they need to wrap themselves around that. We as believers need to wrap ourselves around the fact that our faith is not tied to our building, to our services, to what we are accustomed to. If there comes a time when that's taken away, how will our lives change? There's a titanic move coming in this world in Rome. And the Jewish faith, Judaism, was going to take a huge blow. So, that's where we're at tomorrow, chapter 8. This is Mr. Garwood. This is Paige. Thank you for joining me. Have a great day. Bye-bye. thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither should my thoughts be your thoughts. But cry out loud, think for yourself.